Inspired by the brains behind the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Built by the brawn of Daryl Morey and yours truly, Jessica Gelman. And generously brought to you by our partners at Oracle. Live from our work from home studios to yours, we proudly bring you Trash Talking, a podcast designed to debunk and demystify the use of analytics in sports. We'll point out the dangers of using trash data in decision-making. And in true baller style, we'll serve it up with good old-fashioned trash talking and invite some of our best and brightest friends in sports, business, media, and tech to join the conversation. And now, at 5'8", from Kager, also known as Kraft Analytics Group and MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Jessica Gelman. Also, weighing in at just over 200 pounds with a full beard from the Philadelphia 76ers and the other MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Daryl Morey. In our second episode, we are thrilled to welcome Jonathan Kraft, president of the Kraft Group, including the New England Patriots, New England Revolution, and Boston Uprising, and an early adopter of analytics on both the business and team side of sports. We'll cover fan engagement, growth of football, and soccer analytics, as well as the impact of COVID in sports. And obviously, I've known and worked with Jonathan for 20-plus years. He's uh, brilliant in terms of his creativity and innovation. He was also an early adopter or supporter of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I think, Jonathan, you've been coming since the second year, so when it was back at MIT. And personally, he's a great advocate for women and uh, the LGBTQ community. So I think at one point, this is just a little personal anecdote. I mentioned to Jonathan my interest in meeting Billie Jean King, and he knows her, of course. And when she was at a Patriots game, he, uh, he made me the host. So just like super thoughtful too. So I'm very excited for this discussion. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. You're too kind and uh, you're very welcome and thank you. It's nice. Daryl, I'm very happy you're now with my favorite basketball team after the Celtics, so that's good. (laughs) And Jessica's family, so. We are rivals, you know. That's, uh, you know what, that's okay. I have a lot of respect for football teams in the AFC too and uh, we're not playing each other, it's fine. So first, We'll talk about the future of the fan experience. And Jonathan, given your vantage point as the owner of obviously the Patriots, the New England Revolution, and then in the Eastern Conference Finals Revolution, uh, Boston Uprising, you have obviously seen a lot of impact of the future of the fan experience through COVID. And you've led these sports organizations through major changes in the past, including 9-11 and the advent of Wi-Fi. What do, you, what do you see as the major changes in the sports fan experience in the near future? And you can look at that both from a specific sport or overall across all of the sports industry. I think life is going to be back to normal quicker than people think it will be. Uh, but I do think that the greatest pace of change is going to be in the live venue experience moving more towards a contactless experience from beginning to end in an expedited fashion over where it would have been. So whether that's the entry points uh, to the venue, um, 
to the bathrooms to the concession experience and I I think I think that'll be the biggest visible change to people. I also think that uh, that people will be more aware of the cleanliness of certain situations. But I, even that I think is a little bit of overkill. I think contactless just is better business. Period. And with the heightened sense of hygiene around the virus. Uh, that's that's going to be the most visible change. I I went to a, a, an SEC football game a few weeks ago that had about twenty thousand people present, and it's the uh, only sporting event I've been to in the last nine months where other people have been present, and it felt reasonably normal, other than people just being more polite about not bouncing into each other and and wearing masks. And so I, I, I think we're going to get back to normal much more quickly than people think. I, I do think that the biggest challenge for sports teams is that in the Northeast, especially such a large percentage of our season ticket base skews older in population. And I think going a year without being live at an event and experiencing it different ways or meaning being at home primarily or getting time back in your life. I, I think the biggest challenge that teams are going to face is how to keep uh, those season ticket members engaged and excited about coming back. And some turnover is good. But I think you don't want to lose a whole generation of people that have been season ticket members for decades, you know, in many of these northeastern cities. And I think that'll be the biggest challenge for teams. And what we've done with our teams, really going back to last March, is tried to over communicate with our season ticket members explain to them that they didn't have a gun to their head in terms of paying for their tickets that if they chose, even last spring, we told them, if you cho choose to take this year off, you will not lose your place. We value you there. And we've sent out a number of packages to season ticket members since, uh, since the spring. And we sent them to people who didn't even who didn't buy their season tickets this year, wanting to make them still feel that connection to what they were missing, uh, not being here. So that, that to me will be the greatest challenge. Well, and I think just from my experiences, you always have a very customer first perspective. And I do know that this year in particular, the Patriots were the first team in the NFL to, to offer a full refund, as you alluded to, without question. And then many teams copied that um, and, I, and I think it puts you in good stead go, going forward. I want to come back to this concept of a contactless bathroom. How does that actually work? Well, meaning, well, if you're a woman, it's much harder than a man. But it, what it means is not having to touch any of the, uh, you know, appliances in the bathroom, whether it's the toilet or the urinal to flush it or the sinks to get water. And a lot of people have that or to get, you know, the hand sanitizer or yeah. even then to dry your hands and not even have towels in the bathroom, but truly make it all so that, you know, 
anything that's going to touch your mouth, ears, eyes, nose, face uh, is contactless from other services in the bathroom. Other parts of your body might have to touch uh, items in the bathroom. <laughs> and Jessica, you say I'm the wild card on this podcast. <laughs> I, I thought I did that very... Uh, you, you were very, yeah, you were very discreet there. I, I was yes. thinking that they're actually, people might need to get, um, make, like, make a reservation to go to the bathroom. That's actually kind of what I've been thinking in my head. But the contactless venue that was on the horizon will just be expedited just because it's, it's good business. So Jonathan, with the advances you think, uh, you know, and the therapies coming out that, and the vaccine that live events will bounce back pretty quickly. It sounds like. Do you think that media consumption habits will bounce back? I think people have shifted, you know, to a lot of you know, uh, viewing of streaming of older shows, things like that. Do you see that bouncing back as well? Well, I, I yeah. It's a, it, I think habits are going to change, Daryl, but the biggest habit is going to be how you can, how you uh, acquire video to the home. And while so many of the sports rights um, are staying on traditional, quote, broadcast networks, end quote, some of whom have streaming platforms, but it's still, it's still a a cable or satellite product as opposed to a streaming product and you've got the number of homes that are cutting the cord you know growing at a much faster pace since the 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 virus hit i think the potential number of eyeballs that you can attract to a game the universe is shrinking and the transition to streaming because of existing rights agreements um and some new agreements that might be on the horizon with broadcasters where they want to have some defensive mode to prevent that from happening even more quickly. So I think, I think who the live games are available to uh, based on your decision for how you want to acquire streaming, because the casual fan might say I can cord cut and do without my RSNs and do without ESPN and do without FS1 and, 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 I, you know, those people who would have maybe passively watched a game before won't. I think avid sports fans are still going to be avid sports fans. And I think as we move forward, too, I think there's a lot about the live viewing of games that's going to become much more engaging, especially for millennial and, and Gen Zers, both around um, uh, you know, proposition sports betting within within game streams or views. And then also what I would call the twitchification, for lack of a better term, of, of the interface where you're going to be able, if you want to have your screen filled up with lots of interesting graphics and real-time data and specifics. And I think people who are of that video game uh, generation and like all that information on a screen and like talking about it and commenting on it. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's here at some level, but I think it's going to be here in a much better way over the next 24 to 36 months and become much more quote mainstream uh, unquote. And I, I, I think that that will, that'll, that'll drive, um, that'll drive a viewership of sports 
through mediums, the gambling and the gamification of the interface, the, the twitchification of the interface that just weren't here before. And my guess is, uh, my guess is that'll be good for live sports viewing. It's just really interesting because I hadn't thought about the fact that when we're on Zoom calls or anything virtual now, people are kind of, you can, you see how engaged someone is by the chat conversations and whether people like, like the content. And I hadn't really thought until this conversation, if you were actually having the game and people could, if they wanted to be also making comments, it's happening on Twitter now, but if you combined it and then even could have some of the sports casters be responding to the questions. It's just, it's a really interesting concept. I hadn't kind of connected in, in terms of that. I, I think that type of thing is definitely going to be happening. I, you know, ESPN has played around with that on alternative feeds on some of their bigger event, uh, event stuff. And you, you, they definitely have done it in the college football playoffs the last couple of years. And They've done it with some other things and they'll set up an alternative viewing option with some famous athletes who've played this played football or celebrities and they'll be answering questions and taking feedback from the audience and I, I so it'll it, what we grew up with where everyone tunes to CBS NBC ABC Fox ESPN at one time and gets the same thing that that I believe is definitely going away. I really believe it. And ultimately I think sports ends up dominating news unless some major event is going on in the world because there's a passion around sports that doesn't exist for anything else. And you got to watch it live. And if you can tailor that experience to the person's eyeballs that the way they like to watch and engage and consume, it's just going to be good for everybody. Well, I'm sadly on Twitch a lot to watch uh, chess, and it makes chess exciting. So, Jonathan, I, of course, know that you're an early early adopter on the business side, but you also were on the sports side. And so would would really love a little bit of your kind of origin story around that. You know, why have you what's the perspective of why you bought in early and what were the first big kind of successes that you saw on both sides both on the performance team side and on, on the, on the business side. And if you can just add on while you're at it, what do you see as the next big opportunity? We may have touched on it. I'm going to let you keep hitting me with these one-on-one. -on -one. I don't know how that's such a, a big question. I know. I, look, I, I, I'm not, I do not, I want to be clear for the audience. I do not spend a lot of my time doing the type of technical, I don't spend any of my time doing the type of technical player work Daryl does in basketball. I don't do anything like that in football or soccer. I don't have that skill set, and it would be a waste of time. But I will say that when we first got into the football business, the thing that excited us about the NFL, and it was 1994, it was the first year of the salary cap, the salary cap was going to make decision-making on the personnel side different than it had ever been before. And it was going to require paradigms for thinking that most traditional football people had never um, thought about. <laughs> you know, there was always you know, how much, you know, try to convince my owner to give me as much money and I want to get the best possible player I can at every possible position that I can and it was a salesmanship type of interaction. 
I mean, that was so long ago that probably two thirds of the people listening to this don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, but but that excited us because now, now on the football side, you were going to be judged by how well um, you could your 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 coach and and your football staff, your scouting staff and personnel group could uh, could spot talent that fit what you like to do, sign it up under the rules of the cap at the greatest possible value and coach it. And the teams that could get the most value out of each position rather than the best possible player at each position, uh, we're going to have a competitive advantage. And I have to give uh, Robert, my my father, a lot of credit because what we saw in the first couple of years we were in the league, we inherited a great coach in Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells wanted nothing to do with the salary cap. He basically just said, you know, get some smart kids that can, but you can always make it work and don't bother me with the technical details. But if you don't have your head coach buying into the concepts, you're going to have a problem. And so that's ultimately how Bill Belichick became our coach. I won't get into more of that. But what I started thinking about right after we bought the team was we started trying to figure out, we had like 10 scouts out on the road. This is in 94, all like writing these reports every day and faxing them in, but you didn't really know what was happening to them or how they were being graded on a relative basis. And it just screamed for sort of technology and analysis. And that was very hard when you had a department that was being run by people who literally had, had you know, gotten their toes wet in the 60s and the 70s and were told that the way you scout football players is you go around in your rent-a-car or, you know, in your territory to all these out-of-the-way places and you're buying donuts for the young lady who was the secretary to the football staff so she'd get you in with a coach and you try to grab a cup of coffee with somebody and you'd hear what they'd have to say. It just, it was a weird process. And so in 1995, when Microsoft was coming out with their Windows 95 product, we teamed up with them. We had been a year in because they were looking for some high profile uses to help modernize businesses. And I think that was the first time that we said, we're going to try to do something that allows us on a relative basis to collect data electronically and start to think about how this subjective work of scouts uh, could be made more objective so we could figure out which of our scouts was actually good because nobody was ever doing that. And I, I think that's a very deep backstory about how we get into it. I could go through a whole litany of other things, but it was much more about there's a salary cap, but 90% of the people working in football are doing it the old school way. You need to start bringing some level of analysis to both your scouting process, your data collection, how you're going to make decisions, and how you're going to evaluate people. And, and so that's what it goes back to. I, that was a rambling answer, but. I love that you, uh, you, you went back to the beginning and talked about how you had to have alignment because I met with Doc Rivers and his whole staff for the first time yesterday. And probably the biggest reason I felt like for our success in Houston was literally what you just said, which is we always had this alignment between ownership, the front office, the coach, all the way down to which players we wanted was always very aligned. And I think the organizations who get that wrong and 
the fact that you mentioned that you know you needed to have a common way of viewing the salary cap was a reason why you know there was a shift in leadership makes a lot of sense to me uh, we we had bill james on our last podcast and we had a we had a debate um, over which sport at least on the field where the biggest analytics impact could be coming next and he actually said nfl and i told him he was wrong <laughs> far be it for me to tell billy's wrong but for me the nfl is so he, he mentioned that to be fair to him he mentioned the nfl having a start state like baseball makes it easier to analyze which it does the problem with the nfl is you have 22 players on the field and not a lot of not a lot of plays to me, it was way too complicated. So I, I told him I didn't think the NFL was going to be a big on-the-field analytics. I'd probably come down more on your side of that, Daryl, uh, than not that I'm anywhere near the intellect of Bill James. But uh, baseball has such a large sample size and so many variables that can be measured and controllable. It's just completely – and it's in, it, it's completely different – than, than football. And I think the sample size is, is a huge part of it in the complimentary people who are on the field with you and the variables that just can't be measured and controlled, at least in today's world. So I, I, I agree. I do think the most interesting thing that will likely come in football where some level of, um, more, um, on field data, collection and analysis will be helpful from a coach and personnel staff perspective is if you can start to measure from like the time of a snap, really understand like when a receiver makes his break in his route from the moment of when the ball is snapped and and start to watch him on the same type of route over and over again and start to learn things about when in a game he does it better. Some guys will probably be fresher early and other guys might actually be sharper later in a game or how a defensive back after how many snaps their reaction time to the break. You know, those are the types of things that are interesting. That's sort of like pitch count, but it's very individual. And we're going to need the players union today. The technology exists and we have it on the field. We're not allowed to use it and collect the data, though, the way you would need to. And I think I, so I think those types of statistics that are individual player by player are likely the future. And you think about how to manage your roster during the course of a game. There probably is something there that will be one of the ingredients that you use. But there's just there's so much that you can never measure. And so I think we're a, we're a long way off. So I agree with what you said to Bill James. What's interesting, I agree on the sample size, but Daryl, the comments that Jonathan was making were more specific about the stuff that you've actually been doing in basketball, which is measuring and controlling people on the field. So there's I understand the point of there aren't enough events necessarily to make it statistically significant. But the things he's actually speaking to are the things that you've learned how to control for, I think. Yeah, the real challenge in basketball is is similar to football in that 
a lot of times you can't evaluate what the player, if they're doing it right, if you don't know what's being called. And it's a huge, it's a huge issue. <laughs> um, baseball obviously has huge end and start states. We have a real good shot at using analytics because we go up and down a hundred times a game, 82 times. And each time down, you have a pretty good distribution of zero, one, two, or three, which actually helps a lot to tease out different variables. But um, a lot of these sports, my, my question is, what sport do you think will it be most valuable to? Um, a lot of these sports have the issue that, like soccer, you come down, you do lots of good things and you end in zero. You do lots of bad things and you end in zero. And you just don't have this distribution of outcome. Uh, so, yeah, we're curious which which sport uh, you think might be the next big one. I, I'm not I, – I don't think it will be football. And I think in soccer where we, I think we learn a lot about with, with uh, some of the, we, we learn a lot that helps us strategically in soccer about our opponent with the data that we get. But I think ultimately if you, there's this tracking data that you can look and it, it, it helps you strategically, but I don't, in game planning, but it's a level playing field for everybody because we all see the same data. I think when you are allowed to start using biometric data in game, uh, which we're nowhere close to, at least within MLS, I think there's value to that because of the what soccer is as a 90 minute nonstop sport and, you know, limited substitutions and uh, the physical exertion that some play, you know, well, all players go through it, but they're, you know, midfielders, what they go through during a game. And when you can go back and watch a player play a game, be charting certain biometric data alongside it. And then as you're watching his abilities in a game, some guys really do get better through exertion, which sounds crazy, but other guys who don't, then you can start to figure out in a game when the right time uh, to sub is. I don't think you'd ever make up starting lineups based on the biometric data, but you would do it uh, in terms of your strategy during a game. And I, But we're not allowed to use it yet. And I don't know enough about the other sports and what they're allowed to well, do. I know, I know one's... I know one sport it won't be is esports. We owned a League of Legends team, and they it was so complicated. They changed the problem with esports. They changed the rules every two weeks. So it would be like if we were trying to figure out if Joel Embiid was good, but then like after two weeks they're like his dunking is too dominant. So this week he can't dunk. No gonna, more dunking, Joel. Gonna, so that's esports. We're gonna change the intellectual property underlying the game product to make him less effective. Exactly. Yeah, so it's the crazy. metadata, the me the metadata, excuse the me. The meta, you've learned that, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I actually, I love the concept, Jonathan, you brought up around the individual player and uh, the reaction time and making the right breaks and the timing of that, because it also potentially extends beyond just a sport. We've always had this discussion about the greatest athletes. And in theory, you could do that across sports now if that's tracked in the right way. Obviously, lots of issues, as, as you alluded to, but it's just an interesting thing to think about five or 10 years down the road. The greater the partnership gets between the Players Association and, and the owners in the league office, 
the quicker and better the sport grows. And so I think you have to stop thinking defensively because for every player that you're protecting by not allowing something to happen, what you're preventing from happening, and I understand why they have that mentality, so I'm not criticizing them. I want to be clear. But I think when they start to get comfortable that this type of work will actually help the players who deserve to get paid the most and will allow them to get paid for the value they're they're bringing, I think everybody wins. Because what you ultimately want is an equitable distribution of value based on what you contributed, coupled with some level of security for everybody. I mean, those are the two things that I think a union should want. And I have to believe we'll get there because ultimately, look, the kids that are, you know, 8, 10, 12 years old today who are the pro athletes of a decade from now, they're going to grow up getting that data through their whoop or their Fitbit or whatever they're doing. And this will be that generation of kids, I think, will demand it. They won't be afraid of it. So, Jonathan, with respect to rules and analytics, what piece or element of football could or should be measured that isn't? I think one of the coolest things that should happen in football eventually, which would help down in distance and other things, is putting, you know, uh, an RFID chip in the football. And and when the ball gets snapped, you can start to tell a lot of things. And, and also, it should be how you measure. It's how you should do down and distance. We should. That's the one rule change I would like to see. And it, the technically it exists today. It would help clean up scoring plays. Like we, when we're taping this, we played the Arizona Cardinals yesterday. At the end of the first half, the Cardinals had a couple of snaps from the half yard line, and we stopped them on as time expired. And they thank thankfully the refs ruled no touchdown. I have no idea if the guy got in or not. So I like the call, but they went to replay and there's a big mass of bodies, but you can't see the ball and you can't see the player. And, and if he had scored and you were the team that got screwed, you wouldn't like it. And if they had ruled a touchdown and he hadn't gotten across. So I think taking that type of stuff out of the games, as I said, Mm. the more subjectivity we can take out, the better. So that is the one rule change I would like. I mean, do we really need on first down markers to the old dude meandering across the field and making Let me, that the seem only precise? reason we need that because the people <laughs> in the stadium, I think the as we talked about season ticket members earlier, I think there are that's the way you've grown up watching it and for that generation of people that it use it as their as their guidepost, yes. But do we need it for officiating the game? No, it's a crowd enhancement thing. But they should be they should be people who can I if they can the age doesn't matter, Daryl, but they do need to be fit. So they can be old they just... fit people or young fit people, just not <laughs> not why don't they just people. use the yellow line? Just use the yellow line. As I And in stadium, you and I both know the answer, although when we get, you know, the right, when you get 5G phones and AR, you should be able to hold your phone up to the field and see it yourself. See, Daryl, Jonathan cares about the in-venue experience more than you do. Not surprising. Um, Daryl has to worry about winning games, not generating revenue. The the rest of us have to worry about paying the bills. 
This is there true. you go. That's a good point. There you go. All right. So we're going to get into game time. So Jonathan, this is our take on a popular game called Kiss, Date, or Marry. We're going to present you with three options, and you need to decide which which of the options you're going to bench, which you're going to trade, and which you're going to tag, which is in franchise tag. And you need to tell us the reason why. So bench, trade, tag. Yeah. So that's in reverse order of worst to best. Correct. You, I mean, you can do whatever, whatever order makes sense. Okay, no, I just, I want it. I've played that game before, but it has a different name. <laughs> yes, correct. We made up a different name for it. Um, okay, so top moments. We'll start with the first game. We have uh, maybe four. If we, if, we, if we have enough time, we'll get through them. But the first is top moments in Patriots history. Okay, the first one is the Malcolm Butler interception in the Super Bowl to defeat the Seattle Seahawks. The second is the Adam Vinatieri 45-yard field goal in the snow in 2000 in the 2001 AFC Divisional Playoffs. And the third is the Dante Dante Hightower strip sack in the Super Bowl against the Atlanta Falcons which led to the greatest comeback in the Super Bowl. I may have missed one. I know that. Well, no, but Vinatieri had a kick in the in the in in the game two games after the I one know. you said that won us our first championship. So, am so I allowed could... to substitute that one yes. in for the snow? Sure. Yes. Okay. Look, the the Vinatieri kick in Super Bowl 36 in the Superdome that won us our first Super Bowl. That this was a downtrodden franchise. That moment I it's god, how many years ago now? It's 20 it's almost 20 years ago, and I remember it vividly. And we've been lucky to win other Super Bowls. And I don't, I remember that like, I remember that very, very clearly. So I think the kick in the snow was amazing to tie the game as the clock. And I remember, actually, I do remember that very clearly. So I'll put them both together and say those two kicks that allowed each other to exist, I, I tagged that. Uh, the Dante and Malcolm plays are, look, Malcolm's play won us a Super Bowl. So you gotta, it, it's not to take away from, uh, the strip sack of Ryan, but we still could have potentially won that game. If Malcolm doesn't make that interception, we lose that Super Bowl. And Hightower actually tackled Marshawn Lynch with a shoulder that was separated on the play before to let that play happen. So People always forget that play. They gave it to Lynch on the play before, you know, a yard and a half out. Hightower came from the backside and with one arm that was a separated shoulder, grabbed Lynch by the leg and tackled him. So wow. I'll give the second to Butler and then Hightower strip sack is, is third. But those that and, and my rationale is first championship, definitive championship. Great play that led to a championship, but not a championship. So that's you, why. Can I defend the great. snow game? Because I want to defend the snow game because I bet I remember it more than Jonathan because my son Scott was born while that was happening. And the entire doctor staff was paying attention to the football game as my son's head was popping out. And I had to get them to get their attention Back to baby. Those Bitcoin, are my type so. of doctors. I, were you in Boston or were you somewhere else? I was, you in, in, I was I was in Boston. They had no interest in my son being born. They were just Which watching hospital? the game. 
Uh, it was at Framingham, actually. Oh. Framingham Hospital. Yeah. But Daryl, you see what he did there? He combined. He got both kicks in. He in did. His tag. Yes. Very sneaky. It's, it's, very sneaky. That's yeah, a Good double double tag. I bet the union wouldn't really like that. No. Double tag. Fortunately, they're not overseeing this experience. <laughs> and D D would give me D D I think would give me some absolution on that. So, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> it's one the player because it was Vinatieri. He did both. So yeah, go ahead. Okay, that's fine. So the second one is game two rules from other sports to the NFL. So first one, should there be more points for a further field goal or a longer touchdown pass? So something akin to a three-pointer and a two-pointer in basketball. Should The second is, should the severity of the foul have a higher escalation? I know there is some with like yardage and stuff, but this is more like soccer where you have a yellow card and a red card. Or the third one is rather than having overtime, should we have a hockey style shootout where each team gets the ball at the 20 yard line three times? Those are the three rules from other sports to potentially apply to football. I, I think, well, it's not tough. The last one is a bad idea. I think you either go to the college football overtime rule or keep what we have. I, I you do one of those. So I trade the, the last idea, the, and then the higher penalty on subjective things. I think we want to, we don't want to add subjectivity to refereeing. It just, especially as gambling comes into being. So that's the middle one. What, what did we call that? Ta uh, trade, trade, trade. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, I like, you know, longer field goals, like a field goal over 50 or 52 or three yards being for four points, I, that's that's interesting. And maybe a field goal within 15 yards is only two points, so to get people mm. to go for it. I mean, something like that, that's an interesting concept. I'm excited Coaches for people, huh? I'm excited for people run, running backwards so they can score four <laughs> instead of three. <laughs> So. Yeah, I mean, coach. Yeah, it, it like coaches won't like it, but I mean that that's for longer field goals. I don't think longer pass plays because you could you could throw a ball on a screen and a guy goes fifty five yards, and you know, I I you'd have to change deep. But I think the longer field, like a four point field goal, so you would decide if you were down by four, clocks running out. I actually like that idea, and as kickers get better and better you could think about a field goal within 45 or 50 yards being three and i think it would have to be 50 yards or longer uh, it's an interesting idea all right well jonathan i think uh this was awesome uh right. thank you so much for for taking the time thank you and really appreciate all your insights congratulations what you guys have built with the conference which is really a gift to the whole industry of sports and i know so many kids uh, young adults who reach out to me and when I say that you know somebody that I work with within the group is one of the two of you so Daryl we'd be happy to have you in the group but you know they get all excited and and it's a big deal so you all that's quite a legacy and to in addition to what you're generating in your day job so thank you I think it's been it's been really helpful to the industry as a whole so thank you Jonathan that, that's amazing to say Hey, post-game huddle. My three main takeaways from the discussion. 
were first the sports betting and having that data tailored to someone. I thought Jonathan's point about it being in five years was I actually thought that was too far from now. Um, so that, but I thought it was a great point and how sports is going to dominate news. I think it already does, by the way. The second was his origin story uh, and the fact that they were really starting to do analytics. And he said it multiple times, but 1994. So just for perspective, that predates Moneyball. So I thought that was well, great. Well, predates my, the book. doesn't predate <laughs> Bill James and stuff, but for sure they were doesn't early, predate. early in the NFL. Uh, that was right around when like run and shoot concepts came and, and a lot of the heavy passing offenses came. And so I think, the fact that Jonathan yeah. and Robert were so far ahead of the curve was pretty cool. So. Yeah, no, that I, I hadn't connected the timing of where how the sport was evolving on the field. So that's that's actually super super interesting. But I think the way that he broke down the data collection process, which you and I talk a lot about as one of the biggest challenges, I always kind of think like data access is really challenging, and then data creation. And he was talking about the combination of those two things and making it technologically available. Um, By the way, your point there about the alignment was great. And Mm -hmm. my most interesting takeaway from that point from you is that you had not had a meeting with the entire Doc Rivers and the whole coaching staff until yesterday. Yeah, a lot of that's COVID. Uh, A lot of that's Doc putting his staff together, which took him some time. So it was the first time we had the whole the whole crew in, and it you know happened to be yesterday. So and the other thing we had to do is make sure we had multiple uh, tests of COVID before we got into a properly distanced uh, area to have a discussion. So yeah, I know I know you're really about alignment, but hearing the how critical that was for the Patriots in the early days certainly bodes well for the Sixers' future. No pressure. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There is a lot of pressure, but I guess that's part of the job. So, Well, we'll get to that in a second. And then my, my final takeaway is I really loved what Jonathan spoke about with respect to the ability or need to track players and how they're reacting dependent on the time of the game. And that being a form of analysis to bring to football, which kind of addresses some of the things that you alluded to or have alluded to multiple times in terms of not, not a large enough sample size. I just, that is, uh, do you, are you guys doing stuff like that in the NBA where you're looking at reaction time or you can't, yeah, we get, we get over at camera data 25 times a second. So we can, we can judge, uh, you know, diff, you know, both movement, velocity, acceleration, jerk. We can get all of it actually. So <laughs> um, are you looking at it by time of game? Do you know what I mean? Or so in or custom queries, to, yeah. In custom yeah. queries, yes, but in like uh, player eval at like some macro level, not not really. Um, so yeah, my main takeaway: I just have one, Jessica, and that's that okay. Jonathan settled settled my bet with Bill, and I was correct. And so, boom, Bill, if you're listening to this one, I win the NFL analytics argument. I don't. I'm going to just back Bill for a second. The the issue is sample size. So if the NFL continues to have, is it enough samples in a game or is it over the course of the season? The point is that there aren't enough games. So over the course of the season, yeah, there's not enough games. So it's unsolvable. It really is. So 
Well, he. Get, I thought he came he, up with. He came up with a good solution, which was to track it more on an individual player basis. Doesn't solve it. He would say that too. There's just not enough. Well, and also the challenge is that in the NFL, the in there's so much turnover of the personnel, right? So and there's the just not for long. Twenty two people on the field, too many moving parts. It's too complicated. Yeah, I, I will, I will be happily on the right side of this argument for a very long time. So Daryl, we got to talk a little bit about what's going on with you. We, cause we, the last time we did, the last session we had with Bill was before the draft and before free agency. You've been very active. Well, you think not yes. that active, but I think very active. Uh, I mean, active-ish, yeah. Active, well, how, how do you, what is the, what's the spectrum of active? I, I would say to your point on the, on the large scale things active. Yeah. But I mean, like usually there are changes when someone comes into a new organization. So on the bell curve of coming to a new org, I think we're right down the fairway. So, so you know that people rate the quality of someone's moves you, and, and they say like, who has won? I'm sure this is something that you follow and are very engaged with. They say who has won free agency in the draft. I want you to know that you didn't win. People said the Lakers oh. won. Are you are you upset about that, or is it more? I am upset that they said the Lakers won. Um, <laughs> I did. I wasn't. I thought the players they lost were maybe better than the ones they gained. So uh, now I'm biased. We gained two of them. <laughs> so <laughs> hey, so they. I mean, they won the title, and we have two of their rotation players from their title team. So hey, if you you know they're pretty good. Usually when you get players off title teams. It's a good thing. No, I love, I mean, what's not to love about Dwight Howard. Uh, he, he's also just like fun. No, he's, so. he's awesome. Actually. Um, he had maybe, I mean, obviously his Orlando years were like peak, peak Dwight. And he was very good with us getting us to the conference finals. Uh, but you could argue his last year with the Lakers was uh, one of his best. And he seems like just a, whatever the team needs, willing to just put everything else aside. And that, to me, that kind of a glue person leadership is so critical. Not that I'm in your position, but as a one-time player, that is, that's the type of attitude that I love. Are you comparing yourself to Dwight Howard? Is that what's not, not at all. Oh my God. No, he was a big guy. <laughs> I was a point guard. Hey, Daryl, you know, it's so exciting what we announced last week. Oh, the, the conference, conference. Is virtual. Oh yeah. It's virtual. April 8th and 9th, which is a Thursday, Friday, which is a big change for us. I'm predicting our best speakers ever just because it's a little easier to recruit the virtual speakers. So I'm excited. True. That is a very tricky um, prediction that you just made. As we sign off for today, a big thank you to Jonathan Kraft for joining us, especially the day after the Patriots game and the New England Revolution advanced to the Eastern Conference Finals in the MLS Playoff Cup. Thank you to Oracle for sponsoring the podcast. Thank you to our listeners. Hope you had fun. Thank you to Lance, Jason, Maggie, and Andrew had to endure the torture of this podcast from start to finish. Thank you to the MIT Sloan students, especially Andrew Lynn and Maggie Riddle. If you enjoy this podcast, please submit questions, comments, or future topic ideas to Trash Talking at sloansportsconference.com. Don't miss our next guest, 
Sue Bird, arguably the best point guard in basketball history. Is it